0: Welcome to the audio sermons of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We hope you are encouraged by listening. For more information, please feel free to browse our site at www.sbrpc.org. We've been taking a look at the traditional uh, Advent themes. Um, And so we have so far looked at hope, and we've talked about peace. And this morning we're going to talk about joy, and we're going to do that by looking at a passage in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. So uh, I'm going to read that for us, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll see what this passage has to tell us about joy. So let's look to John 16, beginning in verse 16. This is God's holy word. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, this opportunity to gather together beneath it, and we pray and plead with you that you would pour out your spirit upon us in order that we would see Jesus, in order that we would find our joy in him. We pray these things in his name, amen. I read an article several years ago um, about one of the longest social science studies ever in the world. Um, It's a study called the Grant Study, and it started in 1939 at Harvard and is still going on today. Um, And it's a study about the factors which can meaningfully and reliably predict what they call a good life. long, healthy, fulfilling life. Uh, And it's a fascinating study not only because of its topic, but because of the just incredible breadth of data they've been able to gather over the past 80 plus years. And um, all this data about people's physical and mental health, and they compiled this information throughout the course of the entire lives of these Participants, and so through their marriage, and through parenthood, and through divorce, and through career triumphs and and success, and second and third marriages, and grandparenthood, and bouts with addiction, and years of physical lessening. Um, and they ran tests on all sorts of things, right, on personality traits. And they measured people's skulls. And they did, uh, they did studies on intelligence quotients. And they did DNA testing. And they ran MRI scans. And on and on it goes. Um, and anyway, out of curiosity this past week, I, I thought I'd check up on this study and see if there were any recent articles. So I went to the Harvard Gazette, and uh, and typed it in, and the very first article that came up was entitled this, good genes, that is G-E-N-E-S, it says, good genes are nice, but joy is better. Joy, they're saying, is a greater predictor of a long, healthy, fulfilling life than anything in your genetic code than your personality type, than um, than any of your successes or failures that you've had in this life. And I think it's confirmation of what you intuitively knew all along, what I intuitively knew all along. One of the main resources we need to live and to do life well is joy. We were made for joy. We need it at the very center of our lives. We know that our lives were meant to be lived out of joy at the very center of who we are. And that's why we're constantly seeking and reaching for joy. And it's why the trauma of joy deferred is so painful and can, to lead, can lead to such deep cynicism in our hearts. And here in John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, he tells us about the joy he came to give us. And he tells us about the promise of joy The permanence of joy and the transforming power of joy. So those are our three points. The promise, the permanence, and the transforming power of joy. First, the promise of joy. We're going to come back to this later, but in this conversation, Jesus was telling his followers about his coming death and resurrection. That's what he's talking about in verse 16 when he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. Uh, He's saying, you're going to be sad. But when you see me again, verse 20, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus' promise of joy is certain. You see it throughout this passage. He's not saying you may have joy. You might have joy. Some people might get joy. He's saying it is a certain promise of joy for all of his followers. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Right, to paraphrase another preacher, joy isn't optional. It's not optional for Jesus' followers. Jesus is telling us that joy is inevitable, that it's certain. And and, and you note throughout this passage that this joy he's talking about is always connected to seeing Jesus. After a little while, Jesus is saying, you will see me. And your sorrow will turn into joy. So why is this promise of joy so certain for Jesus's followers? It's certain because Jesus had always be, because joy had always been central to Jesus' mission. Right, so you stay with me here a minute. John is the one who tells us in his gospel about Jesus' first miraculous sign, and he wants you to know that it is his first miraculous sign John 2:11 this the first of his miraculous signs he performed at Cana in Galilee why is that important because think Jesus was beginning his public ministry and so he would have picked a sign that was going to show his followers that was going to show people what his ministry was all about and so what did Jesus do he didn't heal a leper He didn't raise somebody from the dead. He didn't give a blind man his sight. You know what he did? He saved a party. Right? The host of a wedding party had run out of wine, which was more than a social faux pas in this culture and in this time. It would have been an insult worthy of canceling the entire wedding. Because the wine, you see, in the wedding, it was symbolic. The rabbis had a saying that went like this, the wine is the joy of the wedding. And Jesus took water, you remember the story, and he turned it into wine, and not just any wine. The very best wine. So what was Jesus communicating to the people with his first sign? He was saying, my mission is to give you joy, to put into your hand the cup of everlasting joy that you might drink it to its fullness. And in John 16, Jesus was telling his followers, I'm going to make good on my mission. I'm going to make good on my promise. I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. You will drink the cup of joy. Now, just a couple of things to think about before we move on to the second point. Um, One, it is possible that some of you have misunderstood the Bible and Jesus, I mean, if you've ever thought that following Jesus means an end to joy and an end to happiness, you have clearly misunderstood Jesus. And that's okay. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I misunderstood it too for a long time. But think, not only is Jesus' promise of joy certain, not only is joy central to his mission, but just ask how committed to you and to your joy was Jesus. He's talking in this passage about His death and resurrection. He went to the cross to put into your hand the cup of joy. And why was Jesus so sure that when His followers saw Him, they would receive this promise of joy? Because to see Him raised is to understand Jesus. It's to connect all the dots and to realize the extent of his eternal love for you. That he left heaven's glory to suffer and die for all your sins and his resurrection is the receipt marked paid in full and bidding you to enter into the love, the joy and delight of your father. The second, you need to realize this as well. A joyless Christian is an oxymoron. If you claim to be a Christian, joy isn't optional. It's inevitable. It's certain. It is promised to all of his followers. This isn't saying that life is all smiles and there are no tears. We'll get to that in a little bit, that joy can coexist with sorrow in this life. But if you claim to be a Christian, and your life is characterized by a hardness, by a bitterness, or the anger is driving you and controlling you. Something is wrong. Something is off. You either have never really seen or understood Jesus, or something is currently obstructing your view of him. And that could be any number of things. It could be a sin that you're holding on to and refusing to repent of. It could be you removing yourself from the fellowship of believers who are there to point you to Jesus. It could be that you're not seeking him in his word or that your eyes are distracted by the things of this world and not fixed upon Jesus. Any number of things can come in and smother our joy, obstructing our view of Jesus. And my encouragement to you today is that you would fight your way back to seeing Jesus, because he promises to give us joy. All right, second, Jesus tells us about the permanence of his joy. At the end of verse 22, Jesus said, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is saying here that the joy he gives his followers is unmovable, unshakable, unchangeable. It's deep and it's permanent. Simple enough, but l- let's talk through two brief illustrations and try to make some application to our lives. First, you know, for a building to be able to withstand wind and rain and storms, it needs to have a very secure foundation, right? So oftentimes when, when you're building something huge like a skyscraper that's going to be exposed to the elements and to the storms and to the wind, you have to dig hundreds and hundreds of feet into the ground. Because you have to secure that foundation in the solid, unmovable, unchanging, unshifting bedrock, right? Because only then will the building not be pushed and pulled and tossed and torn to pieces by the wind and by life's storms. And it's when your joy is anchored in Jesus, who is what? The rock of your salvation, who is what, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who alone is unmovable, unshakable, unchangeable, and eternal. Only when your joy is anchored in Him will the storms of life blow fiercely, but never touch your joy and never take your joy from you. But if you place your joy in anything else in life, You realize how fragile your joy is, how fragile it is, and how vulnerable it is. It's exposed to life's storms. If you anchor your joy in your health, in your marriage, in your family, in your kids, in your career, in your morality, in your reputation, in your appearance, for something to go wrong then with any of those, with your marriage, or your kids, or your reputation, or your career, it won't just hurt you. It'll topple you, and it'll tear you to pieces because you put your joy into something that is too fragile, that is too shifting. And you go through several of these, and your heart will begin to grow hard and cynical. And you'll become afraid to hope. You'll be afraid to dream. Your attempts at laughter will be attempts to to hide your bitter distrust or or at least numb you and anesthetize you to your wounds in life. It's frightening because we've all been there to some degree, but there's hope here because Jesus never shifts. He never moves. He never changes. And that means you can turn to Him and run to Him for the first time or the millionth time because He hasn't moved. And you can anchor yourself to Him. And find your joy in him. And when the storms blow against your marriage, because they will, or your career, because they will, or your reputation or whatever, no one and nothing will be able to touch your joy or take it from you. So that's one aspect of the permanence of joy. But the second illustration, I hope, helps us see things from from a bit of a different angle. So we're going to leave architecture for a moment and enter the world of biology Certain plants um, have what's called a taproot. And a taproot is that central root that the plant sends straight down deep into the soil. Some, I'll give you an example. Some desert plants, plants, for example, they will send this taproot down as much as 75 feet into the soil. Why? So the plant can draw up water from the deepest resources during the driest of times. Trials and suffering and sorrow and pain and difficulty, they are a part of life in this broken world. We all know that. There's no doubt about it. In fact, Jesus knows that here in John chapter 16, because at the very beginning of chapter 16, Jesus said this to his followers, they will put you out of the synagogues, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. In the very last verse of John chapter 16, Jesus promises this in addition to his promise of joy. In the world, you will have tribulation. But the Bible is very realistic about our suffering. right? But why would James Wright consider it pure joy? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why would Paul write to the Romans saying, we rejoice in our sufferings? Why would Peter write that we are to rejoice that we participate in the sufferings of Christ? Because the only thing suffering and pain can do to you, if your joy is in Jesus, is to force force you to send your taproot down deeper into Jesus. Joy that is anchored in Jesus, it, it's not just maintained in suffering. That's what all the, the writers of the Bible are saying. It actually grows best in the soil of sorrow and suffering and pain and loss. Run to Jesus in your sorrow. Send the taproot of your life down into the joy that you have in Jesus that's untouchable and permanent. All right, third, Jesus tells us about the transforming power of joy so in verse 20 Jesus said "You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy he's not saying that your sorrow will be replaced with joy but that your sorrow will be transformed or turned into joy so think we said at the beginning that Jesus was talking about his coming death and resurrection verse 16 I'll read it again a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me and then verse 20 Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then after that, you get Jesus' illustration of a woman giving birth who has sorrow and pain and anguish. But when the baby comes, she has joy. Right? Her joy overshadows her pain. So that pain is no longer, the pain and the anguish is no longer controlling her. But the joy and the delight and the love she has for her child is. Her pain is transformed because, listen to this, the very thing that caused her pain, the baby, right, has become the source of her joy. There's a paradox at the heart of Christianity, you can't understand Christianity really without paradox. That life comes through death. That joy comes through sorrow. That victory comes through defeat. One of my favorite quotes is from a Scottish minister, James Stewart, who I think wrote beautifully about this uh, paradox. He wrote this, I find it to be a glorious phrase that he led captivity captive. That's a paradox. It means the very triumphs of his foes he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his end, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe. To let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines. Not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men. The very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had defeated God with his back to the wall. Pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. How is it that Jesus' disciples' sorrow was transformed into joy because when they saw him raised, they finally began to understand that the cross wasn't defeat, but it was victory, victory over sin, victory over death. The cross transformed their sorrow. The very thing that caused their sorrow, their pain, the cross, now became to them the source of their joy. Jesus' death and resurrection didn't make salvation possible. Jesus' death and resurrection made salvation certain, made joy certain. He paid it all. He put the cup of joy into our hand. But to do that, he had to take into his own hand the cup of God's wrath and suffer and die for us. And he took that cup and he drained it to the bottom so that we might drink to the fullness of our cup of joy. The, our cup of joy. Several months ago, I read this, this really simple little story, but it, but it stuck with me. Um, years ago, this man named Edward Farrell, uh, he had went on vacation to Ireland, and he actually went there to gather with his family to celebrate his uncle Seamus's 80th birthday. And he tells in this story about how one morning, he and his uncle Seamus went out for a walk. And at one point, while they were walking, Ed looked over at his uncle and he just saw this huge smile on his uncle's face. And so Ed said, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. And he said, I am indeed. And so Ed asked him, how come? And his uncle paused and then he said, the father of Jesus is very fond of me. And I wonder if you could say that, that you know that the Father of Jesus is very fond of you. Because that's joy. When you can sit back and delight in your Father's delighting in you because of what His Son accomplished for you, do you know how to do that? To do it, you have to see Jesus. You have to see what he's done for you. You have to sit beneath the shadow of the cross and begin to see that the essence of his mission was to bring you a joy that is permanent, unmovable, unshakable, and transforming in its power. The angels, you remember, spoke to shepherds while they were watching their flock and they announced Jesus' birth to them. Do you remember the very first words the angel said to the shepherds? They said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Of great joy that will be for all the people. So we need to end. So let me just give you one more thing to think about on your own. Uh, I shared this quote with you a couple of weeks ago. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, just one little sentence. He said that Jesus went down in order to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Here's what this means. That means that if you are united to Jesus, you're going to be raised into resurrection glory one day. And that means that one day, someday, all of your sorrows will be turned into joy. And everything you ever lost and everything you ever sacrificed for Jesus, and every sorrow that ever pricked your heart, and every disappointment that fell into your life, in some day, it will only increase your joy because in that day, He will turn all your sorrow into joy in His presence. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the words of Jesus, um, his promise of joy to us, a joy that is unmovable and unshakable in him, a joy that has the power to transform and turn all of our sorrows into joy. Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would plant it deep into our hearts, That we might rest upon Jesus. That we might look to the cross and know that You delight in us because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Father, teach us this very week to delight in Your delighting in us through Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio sermon of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to pass it along to others who might be encouraged by this message. Also, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the church or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, please feel free to browse our website at www.sbrpc.org or contact the church office directly at area code two two five seven six eight. 768 nine, 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 nine. Again, thank you for listening.